And we are back. And uh, we're very pleased. It's been quite a while. I would say maybe 10 years or more since we last had our guests on the air. We're very pleased that he joins us again. He's very accomplished. He's a professor. He's written five books on the World War II and on the Holocaust. He's a historian. He's been in the Israeli military. Uh, he is uh, actually his two books that I find very fascinating is The Rabbi Saved by Hitler's Soldiers, which is about how the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was saved by the Gestapo and Hitler's Jewish soldiers. So, Professor uh, Brian Mark Rigg, thank you for joining us again. Hey, Zev. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be back. Good to be back. So you have a fascinating story because you grew up as an evangelical Christian but then discovered somehow that during your research on the Holocaust and World War II that you really weren't evangelical Christian but you were a Jew? Yeah, I, um, I was raised in a very uh, Protestant environment. And when um, I was a freshman at Yale University, I decided to go over to Germany to research my family's background and learn the language of my ancestors, especially since the um, uh, wall had come down in 1989 in Germany because a, a lot of my family's towns where they had come from were behind the Iron Curtain. So I was now able to go to East Germany and research my family's background. To make a long story short, I found all these Jews in the family branches on my mother's side that I never knew about. And what I assume happened was when my great-great-grandparents came over, they were just tired of anti-Semitism, and they just told everybody that they were uh, Lutheran and Protestants, never thinking that a great-great-grandson would go back over to the old country and dig up the, the family bones, if you will. And so, you know, when I came back to Yale University for my sophomore year with this information, I sat down with a uh, rabbi from Orsamaic at the Hillel there at Yale. His name was Rabbi Kasnet, and I showed him all my documents. And he got real excited and said, you know, Baruch Hashem, blessed be God, you're a Jew, you know, because it came down to my mother's line. And I asked him, well, I always thought I was a wasp, so, you know, what, what does it mean to be a Jew? And I got a scholarship to go to Orsamaic in Jerusalem and study in the yeshiva there and you know, a few years later, I served in the Israeli military, so I've embraced my Jewish background. I'm an ethical humanist now, and I'm a member of the American Jewish Committee, and I was on the Holocaust Museum board here in uh, Dallas, and so, you know, I was a member of Hillel at Yale, so I've embraced that background, and I've uh, kind of come full circle uh, with my ancestors rejecting it. Now I've embraced it, and you know, my oldest son wants to serve in the Israeli military, so he's continuing on that tradition of embracing it as well. So I am who I am, and uh, that is one big part of my identity. Certainly, and uh, it's interesting. So did, how did your parents take to the fact that you discovered you were Jewish? You know, my dad, ironically, you know, um, a lot of people always thought he was Jewish. Uh, his nickname in high school was the, the rabbi. Uh, but uh, to my knowledge, he has no Jewish background. I mean, he's actually, through him, I'm related to William the Conqueror uh, and uh, one of the founders of Philadelphia, Sir John Linton. But um, he was fine with it. But my mom and, and her family, the ones who actually had the uh, you know Jewish ancestry, they were a little disconcerted uh, at first. And, and, you know, we had a little bit of a family meeting. I was trying to understand why we didn't know about this and... <laughs> A few of them would pipe up. You know, Brian, we have enough problems as it is as a family. You know, we don't need anti-Semitism, too. 
And I would basically counter saying, well, you know, you love Jesus, and he was a, you know, he was a Jew. And they're like, well, no, that, that was different. I was like, no, it's not. He was a rabbi. You know, he was one of the most successful, you know, Jewish figures in history. Uh, and uh, so eventually a few of them have come around and have embraced it. My mom, every now and then, goes to a messianic synagogue. And when I told Rabbi Kastnet that, you know, he kind of he kind of piped. He's like, "Oh, they, you know, that's worse." Right, <laughs> because it's true that you can't be Christian and Jewish at the same time. Either you're Jewish or Christian. The Messianic congregations mess it all up, and it, it's it's yeah. doing a disservice yeah, to know, the Christians. But, yeah, but the, you know, the positive thing about that is that there there is a little bit more embracing of it within my family. And so, you know, at first they were very disconcerted about it, but, you know, now after, you know, well over 20 years of me going over to Israel and, you know, and showing to people the documents that I have, you know, it's part of our history now. Wow, so it's amazing. Are you going to write a book about your spiritual honesty? Well, you know, I'm, I'm working to some degree uh, on that right now. You know, so many people have encouraged me to write a book called In Search of Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. So, you know, my, my own Jewish discovery and Jewish identity parallels with the research that culminated in my first book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers, because I fell into that subject matter at the same time when I was, um, you know, finding out about my Jewish background. And so, you know, I have been working on that for about 20 years. I've often thought, you know, good Lord, I, you know, when I first started it, I was in my 30s. I was like, you know, what do I have to offer to humanity to be writing my autobiography, you know, about the historical process of documenting, you know, my Ph.D. that then turned into uh, four books on World War II in Nazi Germany. Uh, but, you know, now I'm, I'm looking at it more introspectively and coming back to a lot of the interviews of the men that I uh, interviewed 20, 25 years ago, you know, and all of them are basically not with us anymore. And I think, you know, doing that odyssey of how I did the research for almost 10 years and interviewing over 500 men of Jewish descent to serve the Nazi military, and then at the, the parallel experience of me learning about my Jewish background and spending time in Israel and studying in yeshivas and learning about, you know, German Jewish history, I think is very uh, interesting. And I can tie in a lot of historical themes and new subject matters and interesting personalities because I got to be friends with the former chancellor of Germany, Helmut Schmidt, who had Jewish background. He was in the Nazi military. I got to interview, you know, Hitler's bodyguard, Hitler's uh, secretary, couple of his generals. I was meeting, you know, very prominent rabbis like Rabbi Besser in New York and becoming good friends with him, and he was supporting me. And uh, so uh, I think this, this does have uh, relevance uh, to different themes about, you know, exploring, um, you know, racism, exploring that, hey, we're part of one race, the human race, and also exploring from a different angle uh, the Holocaust, once again, which we can't study enough because we continue to have genocide in the world. So when we say never again and it continues to happen again, we see we have a lot of work to do, you know, with Takum Olam. Or, you know, it kind of reminds me of what George Orwell said. He said, you know, every morning I wake up and there's a side of me that wants to enjoy the world and then there's another side of me that wants to save it. And it makes planning for the day difficult. <laughs> and I think uh, that's where I'm at with this kind of like personal journey of writing this down. So, you know, thanks for the question, Deb. Yeah, I think no, I'm, really, I'd love to say that. Bring that yeah. out in the next year or so. 
So I want to get back to Hitler's Jewish soul a little later on, but the book that I was fascinated by, and you've written it, it was reissued in 2016, The Rabbis Saved by Hitler's Soldiers. You deal with the previous Lubavitcher Rabbi, the sixth one, uh, who was saved by the Gestapo. It's a great story. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much, Deb. Yeah, it's, it's actually the Abwehr, the, the German Secret Service that was, um, and a lot of people... Uh, interchange Gestapo and Abwehr. That's a common, common mistake, but it was the German uh, Secret Service that got into it. Yeah, it got reissued in 2016 when my, um, when, you know, it, when I documented the German personalities, uh, who rescued the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Joseph Itzhak Schneerson. Uh, I started writing about this and researching it in 19, uh, 92 and 93, and then I really kind of dove into it in 94, right when uh, the Seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, passed. And um, it became an essay at Yale University, and then it came out master's, and then it became a book that eventually came out with Yale University Press in 2004. When it came out, it was about a 320-page um, a uh, uh, book at the time. Uh, I had all these people get in touch with me who were connected to the rescue in certain ways. Uh, members of Brandeis families, members of Benjamin Cohen's family, who was in the brain trust of FDR and was instrumental in helping the Rebbe. Um, one of the main German personalities who was second in command of Goering's four-year plan. Uh, his name was Helmut Voltoff and was really key in getting the Rebbe out of Europe. His daughter got in touch with me. The lobbyist in Washington, D.C., that was critical for linking the Lubavitcher community with the establishment in the State Department, uh, Max Rode, his family got in touch with me. And make a long story short, I got about another 10,000 pages worth of documentation uh, to uh, rewrite the book in many respects, to bring out a second edition and a richer edition. The, the second book is almost 600 pages along. Um, Ernst Bloch was the German soldier who was on the ground who actually found the Rebbe and got him out of Warsaw, out from underneath the nose of the SS, and rescued him. Without him, also, you really don't you don't have a Chabad in America. Um, so so let, let, let's uh, not, how, how did it end up that the, um, the United States government got in touch with... Uh, Germany and helped rescue the Rebbe. How did it all come about? Let's give our audience a taste of what you wrote about sure. the hundred pages. This, this is, you know, this is one of the most remarkable rescues of World War II, if not the most remarkable. And I'm quoting a, a dear mentor of mine, Michael Barabow, who was one of the uh, most instrumental people with the Washington D.C. Holocaust Museum. He ran the Shoah Foundation. Uh, just a brilliant mind and a wonderful Holocaust scholar, and he's helped me with this research and, and has written support, uh, you know, blurbs and, and reviews for it. Just a wonderful man. So how did this happen? It, how did this remarkable rescue happen? Well, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, in the 20s was being persecuted by the Soviet Union. And uh, in the late 20s, he was sentenced to death. And our government got involved because of a lot of the Lubavitchers here had contacts to Senator Robert Wagner in New York. Uh, had contact to Brandeis at the time and a few others, and it basically got. But there, were, there weren't there weren't that many Lubavitchers in the United States at that point. There weren't that many, but they had some key contacts. And as we all know today, you know, <laughs> one Lubavitcher can make himself feel as if he's a hundred people, you know, because they're very loud and very vocal about things they're passionate about, especially with their Chabad houses all over the 
the world. So they're very, even though they're, back then they were a small number, they were very similar to what they are now, which means they get out there, they're very aggressive, they're very present in the community. So when the Soviet Union, Stalin, was going to kill him, they basically mobilized their contacts in America, helped rescue him. Uh, the Rebbe did get out of prison. He came to America in 1929, and he did a goodwill tour. He met Brandeis. He met other uh, politicians. He actually met President Hoover at the White House. And uh, so he had these contacts kind of, uh, you know, uh, already established. Now let's fast forward. 1939, when Germany invades Poland, the Rebbe is right outside of Warsaw in the main center for Chabad called Altvok. And... Um, he was trapped there because, you know, Germany took it over so quickly. And once again, his followers here in America started mobilizing all the political contacts they had, especially from what they had had 10 years before. And they were getting in touch with Benjamin Cohen, who was part of the brain trust under FDR, wrote the New Deal. They got in touch with Brandeis. Uh, they got in touch with Senator Robert Wagner. They got in touch with, you know, Philip Kleinfeld, very prominent politicians at this time. And they even got up to uh, Secretary of State Cordell Hall. And Cordell Hall was actually married to a Jewish woman. He was not real proactive with Jewish issues, but it did reach him. And they, the reason why they contacted him is because of his Jewish wife. And so and this even, you know, it had to get to FDR. I haven't found anything in Hyde Park, but if Benjamin Cohen knew about it, he definitely briefed the, the, the president. So basically... Um, the the government at the time, they were getting so much pressure, they basically said, okay, uh, we will try to help you get the Rebbe out. And they did it for political reasons, not for humanitarian reasons, as we know with the St. Louis and other uh, famous uh, events in World War II. America was horrible with uh, helping with the immigration issues of Jews that needed to get here, especially under... Uh, Assistant Secretary of State uh, Breckenridge Long, who was a horrible human being and was a criminal in my my estimation. But anyway, um, America at the time, the, the government officials were involved. You know, there might have been some that were thinking of it from a humanitarian point of view, but by and large, the reason why the higher-ups decided to act on it is because they said, hey, we can get a lot of goodwill here, a lot of goodwill from the Jewish community, and this guy was presented to them as the Pope of the Jewish world. So they were looking at it like, okay, this guy has a lot of prestige and it can help us. So they basically got in touch with Robert Pell in the Foreign Affairs Office who had had very good relations with Helmut Voltot, who was Goering's uh, second-in-command of the four-year plan. And they had met at the Avian Conference in 1938 when the world met there in that town in Switzerland to talk about the Jewish immigration crisis, and basically nobody wanted to do anything. But behind closed doors, Voltaire told Pell, if there's ever some Jews that you want to get out of Germany, you just let me know and I'll help you. So when Brandeis and Benjamin Cohen and others got in touch with Pell once they got the green light from the State Department and the White House to do this, Pell went to Voltaire and asked Voltot, can you help us out? You remember what you promised me back in 1938? Voltot said, absolutely. We will help you out. And remember, America's not at war with Germany at this time in 1939. They want to keep, they have diplomatic relations open. They want to keep relations good. They want to stay out of war. 
And so Germany wants to keep that status quo. They're fighting Poland. They're they're going to they got declared um, war got declared against them from England and France. So they're looking again at a two front war. So at this time period, they want to keep America out because remember in 1917 when America came in, it devastated Germany and basically brought a conclusion to World War One with Germany's defeat. So Voltot got Goering's permission and others to act on this. And he went to the head of the German Secret Service, the Abwehr, Admiral Canaris, who was known to be against the Nazis and who was known also to have a lot of people of Jewish descent in his organization, uh, that he had helped get Aryanized and had given special clemency to remain in the military and in the cryptology departments uh, of the German uh, Military Secret Service. So Canaris, when he heard this, and this delicate you know, situation. He says, absolutely. Uh, I know exactly who I would ask to do this, and we can get this done. To go up to Warsaw and find Rebbe Schneerson and his entourage and get them uh, out of Warsaw and get them to America. I want to so pick up. I want. I want to pick up on that story. It's a fascinating story. Our guest is Professor Brian Rigg. Has written five books. We're discussing two of them: "The Rabbi Saved by Hitler's Soldiers" as well as "Hitler's Jewish Soldiers." We're going to be right back. Don't go away. Stay tuned. TCN Talk Live Network Radio, America's number one Jewish program. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please become a fan of TalkLine with Zeb Brenner on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, and YouTube. On Twitter at TalkLine Network, if you have an Android phone, please download our free app in the Google Store. For iPhones, download the Jewish Radio app. Of course, tune in 24 hours a day at TalkLineCommunications.com for nonstop Jewish broadcasting. And we are back. Our special guest is Professor Mark Brian Rigg. He's written fascinating books. We're looking at um, not only Hitler's Jewish soldiers, which will be upcoming. We'll look at that. We're looking how the how the German secret police helped save the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So I interrupted you, Professor Rigg. You were we were in Warsaw, where it's 1939, and they're sent. To, actually, the the secret service of the Germany is sent to find the Rebbe in Warsaw. How do they find the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe? Rabbi Schneerson. The Lubavitchers had given all the information that they knew about where the Rebbe's whereabouts uh, were in Otwok and then later on in, in Warsaw and the places where he was staying. And they turned this over to the State Department and the State Department turned it over to the German Secret Service. Uh, when Admiral Canaris, who was head of the Abwehr, the German Secret Service, decided to help out with this rescue once he was asked to do so, he picked uh, a gentleman by the, the name of Ernst Bloch, who was a quote-unquote half-Jew uh, and had been Aryanized by Hitler and allowed to remain in the military. He was a decorated World War One soldier, had a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Berlin, was a brilliant mind, and, uh, you know, Kinnaris just basically had a conversation. was like, hey, you're going to go up to Warsaw. You're going to take some of your guys. One of the guys that he was going to take was a, what was called a quarter Jew, but was raised by his Jewish grandfather, who was a rabbi, and he knew Yiddish. And so he said, you're going to take the, these groups up there, you're going to go up and find the most ultra-Orthodox rabbi in the world, basically, uh, and uh, you're going to rescue him. You can't miss him, he looks just like Moses. 
Jews, you know. <laughs> and he, and, he and these, war these were Jewish soldiers or half Jewish soldiers. So the, the German army, the Nazis knew who they were, but they koshered them to stay in the army, basically speaking. That's right. You know, when, when if people who are listening in, if this sounds shocking to you, if you do me the, the honor of looking at my first book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers, I go into the Nuremberg Laws, the Nazi racial laws, and how crazy it was that when you studied them, you realized when the people were designated as half-Jews and quarter-Jews in Nazi Germany, one Jewish grandparent, quarter-Jew, two Jewish grandparents, half-Jew, these people were called Michelinga, and they actually, if they were young men, they were required by law to serve in the Wehrmacht, the German military. They didn't have a choice. Now, if they did well, they could get special clemency and get Aryanized like Ernst Bloch and rise up to the ranks. But basically, everybody had to do service in Nazi Germany um, if you were a half-Jew, quarter-Jew, or if you were quote-unquote Aryan. If you were more than 50% Jewish, then you were not allowed to serve. But these guys uh, who were half-Jews and quarter-Jews, they had to serve. So it wasn't that crazy that you had a lot of people in the Abwehr in 1939 that actually had this background. So Panaris picked these men with his background. He trusted Block and, and implicitly, and he said, go up there and find him. So Block is going up around Warsaw with, you know, a group of four or five German soldiers they, knocking are, are on they, doors. Are they, dressed, are they dressed as soldiers? Oh, yeah, yeah. Block they dressed as Nazi you know, soldiers. Iron, okay, German soldiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Block has his iron crosses. You know, he's in his, his, his military officer's uniform, and he's going door to door trying to get the Lubavitchers to trust him. Now, what's interesting at this time is you're getting information out of Warsaw that they know these Germans are coming there and trying to get find the Rebbe, and they don't trust him. And then the White House and the State Department is writing back saying, "No, you got to trust them. We sent them to you." And while so you're the White House is corresponding to Lubavitchers in New York? Yeah, the Lubavitchers in New York. Uh, Jabe Jacobson was the secretary of the, uh, the organization here, and he was getting a lot of uh, telegrams, uh, you know, telegraphs from Europe about this uh, case. And so they would turn this over to this wonderful guy named Max Rode, who was a lawyer, and he was keeping everybody informed and the proper information going to the the proper chain of command, if you will, to get it over to Germany. Eventually, the Rebbe decides trust Block and hands himself because over. Because they kept knocking at the hideout a few times before yeah, they, they kept knocking. Yeah, and at the end, and the Rebbe finally said, if he comes back, uh, then let him in. And I actually interviewed one of the German soldiers and a couple of the the Jewish students who were there with the Rebbe when this happened. And I, you know, I interviewed the Rebbe's grandson. Uh, you know, Rabbi Garari. Um, you know, I was wonderful. Uh, I, was, I was blessed to get a, uh, a meeting with him, and you know, he's a huge person in this whole debate about the library and, and so on. Um, and so he was there when the German soldiers came, and I interviewed him. So the Rebbe, the, you know, it's the, the interesting. The Lubavitcher uh, hagiography, if you will, and the, the mythology is that they believe a Jew in a German uniform uh, from World War One came and rescued them. You know, that was one version. Another version was that it was an angel in human form that came and rescued them. Another version that it was a Jew that had hidden his background and had, you know, found a German uniform somehow and pretended to be a Secret Service. And then there was, you know, another story that this was indeed a German German officer. Once the Rebbe decided to trust him, uh, the block was flabbergasted 
when the Rebbe said, I'm not going to leave unless you take, you know, my, some of my closest family members and my secretaries and so on, up to about 20 people. Because Block was only planning on taking the Rebbe and, you know, uh, maybe his wife, a few kids, grandkids, and that's it, you know, maybe up to six or seven. So, you know, eventually Block gets the necessary train documents and the travel bachelors and everything that he has to have to take 20 ultra-Orthodox Jews through SS checkpoints. Now, where, where was, the, was the Rebbe staying in the Warsaw hideout while this yeah. was being negotiated, or did they take him to a different place? Well, you know, eventually when, um, when, when the Rebbe finally turned himself over to Block's care, Block had uh, a truck and uh, kind of like an uh, elongated um, uh, semi truck as well, and he would put he put he put them all in the um, uh, the the vehicles, and then it looked, I think from what I've been able to ascertain, he took them to a few of the German um, barracks that were in the area, and you know the first thing he did. Uh, with them is to get them clean. I mean, they had been under siege in Warsaw with no plumbing, no no ability to clean themselves, wash their clothes for months. And so, um, you know, the first thing, you know, a lot of the clothes were discarded. In fact, some of the, the Orthodox Jews found themselves having to wear some German uniforms while they were cleaning up their uh, clothes or finding some other clothes for them. So, so it looks like for a few days they were in a kind of secure area in a barracks, a military barracks, and then they they were they were um, planning their escape, if you will. And as Block is going through these SX checkpoints to get out to a train station, because he was going to first take him to Berlin to then get him up to Riga, that was the goal. Uh, you know, he had to pretend like he was going to take these guys out to shoot them, because you know a lot of the intelligentsia at the time and Jewish leaders, well, as soon as the SS found them, they took them out and killed them because they didn't want people to have leadership. Uh, so the Rebbe was obviously a prime, you know, prize for the SS, and Block knew this. Well, he did a great job pretending, you know, uh, that he was going to, you know, mistreat these Jews. He'd get out and talk to the SS men at the checkpoint saying, you know, we're taking these Jews outside of Warsaw, we're going to make them dig their own graves, we're going to kill them. And then he'd get back in the truck, and he'd look at, you know, the Rebbe and say, hey, don't worry about it, I'm Jewish, I'm here to protect you. And it's a remarkable story of how Block was able to get him to Berlin and then from Berlin to get him up to Riga and to make a long story short, because I know we have questions. Uh, you know, and the Rebbe, to was, Riga, the Rebbe, was the Rebbe in a wheelchair? Well, this is what's crazy. I mean, the Rebbe was not in good health. He was obese. You know, he was, uh, he was probably five foot eight, uh, maybe five foot nine. He was about 230, 240 pounds. He smoked heavily, sometimes three packs a day. He had MS, and he was wheelchair-bound. So, you know, during the bombing of Warsaw, you have these almost, you know, you could almost say comical, tragic scenes where, you know, he's being carried down by three or four yeshiva boys who are not very, you know, physically fit, downstairs and trying to get him into bunkers and putting him in, uh, you know, Sometimes they had to put him on a stretcher and get him around. So he was, you know, he had a nurse with him that had to help him dress and clean himself. And he was not in very good shape physically at all. And so during this whole process, you're having to do extra, um, you know, care 
to get him to certain places, to help him get clean, to get him dressed, to help him, you know, get fed and so on. So, yeah, you bring up a very interesting point that adds a whole new dimension of drama uh, to the story. And, um, you know, they kind of make, make the long story short because, you know, it is this, you know, almost 600 pages of uh, information that I have. Um, you know, when the Rebbe gets to Riga, the uh, Stalin starts rattling his saber. And the reason why he was in Poland and not... Professor? Okay. Professor Riggs? Okay, we're going to reestablish contact with uh, Professor Riggs. We'll also take start taking some of your phone calls at 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925. Uh, we'll be right back with more, and we'll look at the how the Secret Service of the Nazis saved the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Joseph Schneerson. Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You're listening to Talkline with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. Here is your host. We're back. Our final stretch with Dr. Zev Zelenko. Here's an email question, Dr. Zelenko. Monique writes, I'm a 33-year-old woman, a mother of five kids under eight years of age. I'm out of energy on no sleep. I like to have what's good vitamin and supplement regimen I can get in to boost my immune system, especially during these hard and dangerous times. I'm currently taking 30 uh, mg of zinc, milligrams right. of zinc. You know, you're like everyone else, you know, busy life. Thank God, the large number of kids. It's a wonderful job you have. But, uh, you know, I'm sure you're sleep deprived and your immune system is probably suffering from that. So the most thing you could, the best thing you can do is learn how to meditate and relax. But if you want to take uh, some supplements, the ones I recommend are obviously vitamin D, zinc, B12, um, vitamin C. And in this time, I would even recommend quercetin because of the prophylactic properties of zinc and quercetin together. Raising and Barbara, go ahead. Your quick question and comment to Dr. Zelenko. Go yes, ahead. I would like first to comment and really congratulate him. He's an amazing person. I heard personally from people, and so much enough thank you wouldn't be enough for so many lives that he saved. It's disgusting, all this politics. Really, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. And I hope he feels better. And by the way, I wanted to know, nobody can tell me when exactly did you come up with the uh, chloroquine, with hydrochloroquine, because my brother passed away the second day Pesach. I cannot get over it. I feel his doctor literally murdered him by keeping him at home, no medication, and no hydrochloroquine and anything. And he left 11 children. He was an amazing, wonderful person. When exactly was the day that you came out with the hydrochloroquine? So, first of all, thank you very much for your kind words and for your bracha for my health. It means a lot to me. I'm sorry yeah, about you. A lot of people who believe in you, who, who, who respect you a lot. So I don't take credit for it. There was uh, a gift from God. Um, these ideas, you know, usually come at night when you're just sitting there worried about something. And it, it just, it was a, it was a bracha. But um, regarding your question, it, hydroxychloroquine 
was being used in the Far East um, and in France in January and in February. But there was very little data that, um, about it. Now, in, in America, I was essentially the first person to start using it together with zinc. I was the first in the world, actually. Um, right, but what the, date was that? Um, March 13th. Mm -hmm. I don't have a calendar. I was wondering if it's uh, how long before Pesach that was. But uh, I guess he just started, and then it certainly took a while for him to get it out to the public. Razi, I'm sorry about your brother, and thank you for calling. He was home three weeks, and his doctor in Muncie knew that you can get it and wouldn't give it to him, and um, there you go. He left 11 children. It was an amazing I'm person. very sorry. He was uh, 59 well, years old. No, I'm sorry to hear that. But I appreciate your calling. Thank you. We have only about literally a couple minutes left. Libby writes, uh, Dr. Zlunga, what causes laws of smell by corona? What can be done to get it back? Um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but it's only spe it's very specific to corona. Uh, it seems like zinc deficiency actually contributes to that. So once your body clears the virus, um, I would continue the zinc until the smell comes back. R.G. writes, thank you for all you've done and are doing for the for us. Could you please repeat the amount of vitamin D I should take every day? Um, you said 500 milligrams, vitamin C, 1,000 milligrams, zinc, 25 milligrams. How much vitamin D, how much EGCG, or is that instead of the, um, not in conjunction with the others? So these are very complex questions, and I, I don't want people to get mixed up. What I strongly recommend is that you get a written printout of my protocols, which maybe I will make available to Zeb and he can somehow disseminate it. But it's very important that we get this right. It's not a joke. And people should, of course, they, could, they have to take this under the direction of a doctor. You can't just make up the amounts that they take. They should do that in a prescribed oh, regimen. Counter options, they actually, you know, no one's going to tell them. I'm going to tell them. But the over-the-counter options don't need a prescription, so they don't really need to be under the care of a doctor. The truth is there's no there's very few doctors that understand this disease or are willing to take the risk um, to their own credentials to treat people correctly. But I want, I want to get back to your vitamin D question. How much vitamin D it actually depends on your vitamin D level, um, which could be measured with a blood test. I recommend levels between 50 and 70. That's high normal. And that's where all the um, protective properties and benefits of vitamin D are. So just to take vitamin D indefinitely, um, you're not sh I'm not sure you're going to have the right either too much or too little. So I recommend 5,000 a day, but with the caveat that you're going to do a blood test maybe once every month or two. We have 30 seconds. How can you know, people get your – what's your Twitter handle for people to contact you? It's at Zev, Z-E-V, underscore D-R. It's the pinned tweet, which means it's the tweet on top. Again, it's Zev. It's a good, nice name, Zev, huh? I, Zev I, can, I can relate to that. <laughs> anyway, so if people can contact me, I'm happy to share the information. Dr. Zev Slunko, thank you for being here with us. God bless you. Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
Please become a fan of Talk Line with Zeb Brenner on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google Plus, and YouTube. On Twitter at TalkLine Network. If you have an Android phone, please download our free app in the Google Store. For iPhones, download the Jewish Radio app. Of course, tune in 24 hours a day at TalkLineCommunications.com for nonstop Jewish broadcasting. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. Here is your host. We're back, and we're going to take your phone calls. Our guest is Professor Brian Mark Rigg. He's written fascinating books, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. We're looking at uh, his book that came out a couple years. Actually, it came out twice. It came out again a couple years ago, dealing with the saving of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This fifth, the sixth Lubavitcher, Robert Joseph Schneerson. Professor Riggy, your book is still available, correct? They can buy it on Amazon? That's right. That's right. Yeah, it, yeah Amazon, it, people can look at my works on my website, which is my name, Brian Mark Rigg, and Brian's with the Wise and Yankee, and Rigg has two Gs, R-I-G-G. And the, um, uh, the second version of the book is called The Rabbi Saved by Hitler's Soldiers. And there's a foreword there by Michael Barabell, and I also have a foreword there by my professor, beloved professor at Yale. She died a few years ago, unfortunately, of cancer, Paula Hyman. Uh, so, yes, the book is still in print and can be bought. Okay. Th- let's go to Stan and Forest Hills. He's been patient waiting for over 25 minutes. Stanley, your, you stand your question for our guests. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Go ahead, Stan. I'm getting an echo. Seth. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Uh, I want to ask two things. One, uh, are you a Messianic Jew? No. Okay, that solves that question. The second question is, I, from what I'm hearing from you and what you wrote, you're basically indicting Jews against themselves uh, to a large extent. And that's the story. Wait a minute, that's the story here. Now... There were Jews that worked for Hitler. I'm not talking the 20s. Forget Stalin. I understand that point of view. But we're talking the late 1930s where, in Germany, Jews were being harassed by that time and to a large extent. And what we're hearing from your history is that basically so many Jews that did uh, were in the military as half-Jews and so forth were allowed to stay in up to that point. And that Jews discriminated against Jews, and used that the rabbis uh, as well did not help his own people and so forth. So the overall story I'm getting from you is that the Jewish people killed themselves to a large extent. They did themselves in. Uh, that's the way it sounds to me. Uh, well, and on, you may on, be on, true. On, By the way, on, your on, history on, may be uh, true. Hold on, hold on. I take offense. I take offense uh, dramatically that uh, this guy has misinterpreted my history and misinterpreted what, what I said. I'm not saying Jews did themselves, and that's preposterous. And I would even go so far to say that is idiotic. If you well, well, that's not what you're saying. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let, let, let him, let him, let him speak. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Take this guy off. Okay, go ahead. Um, this, yes. this is this is this is this is you know this guy's not listening to me and he's not even looking at my homework and he doesn't even know my research. Now, when you look at there's two different subject matters that he's bringing up here. One is you got to look at Nazi Germany as a society that was very complicated. 
when Hitler came into power and said Jews are bad, he was faced with how bad did you, uh, how, how much Jewish did you have to be to be bad? And he first came out with the Aryan paragraph, and that didn't really answer very much because you had to have uh, four German Gentile grandparents to be a German. But if any one of those were quote-unquote non-Aryan, then you were labeled as a non-Aryan. And there were so many of these people that were falling out of the woodwork, so to speak, that Hitler said, man, we got to find a different law. Also, the Japanese don't like being called non-Aryans, and we're allied with them. Uh, so they started looking at different ways of doing it, and they came up with the Nuremberg Laws. And the Nuremberg Laws came out, and they defined who a Jew was, and that was a person who was 50%, uh, more than 50% Jewish, and that are, are a person who practiced the Jewish religion. So that was a full Jew, according to the Nazis. And these were the people that they really were focusing on and persecuting. Then he created these two new legal fictions, half-Jews and quarter-Jews. And a half-Jew had two Jewish grandparents, and a quarter-Jew had one Jewish grandparent. And then you had, on the other extreme, you had a, a Aryan, if you will, a German, a Gentile German. And that means you had four German Christian Gentile um, uh, grandparents. Now, for all the Nazi talk about the Jews being a race, they ultimately had to use religious criteria to define that race. Death certificates, birth certificates, marriage certificates throughout Germany always noted a person's religion involved. And as a result, the Nazis had to use these documents to define somebody's race instead of looking at their blood or to look at, you know, if they had dark hair and flat feet and big noses, the, the gross anti-Semitic stereotypes that Hitler had at that time. So when Hitler brought these laws out and people had to start documenting their four grandparents religiously, basically, you had hundreds of thousands of people who had Jewish ancestry. Many of them didn't even know they had it because uh, their ancestors had converted. And you basically have like 2 million plus people out of 90 million people who were of Jewish descent, and Hitler really didn't know what to do with them. Um, and he continued to say, we'll deal with them after the war. Uh, but many of the guys who were in military age brackets were drafted. They didn't have a choice. And many of these men, uh, when they were serving, they helped their relatives. They thought maybe, you know, serving would help protect their relatives from being pers persecuted more. They get back maybe the citizenship that they had lost. And if you read Carl Schloh's book, The Twisted Road to Auschwitz, you see how this process of genocide and systematic extermination was really twisted. It was not as clear-cut in 33, 34, 35 as it became with, like, the Bonzi Conference of January of 1942, when Heydrich finally really just organized all the uh, civil service to really focus on getting the Jews to the death camps and then systematically exterminating them. And as anybody who studies the Holocaust, they'll know that out of the six million Jews who were slaughtered, over half of them were basically done in 42 and half of 43. I mean, it's amazing how quickly that got ramped up. But a lot of these guys who were serving, they lost on average between six and seven relatives themselves in the Holocaust, these German soldiers. And many of them were, at the end of the war, deported to their own forced labor camps. So they're a whole genre of victims who were persecuted by the Nazis. And they weren't, I never said they were killing their own Jews. That is preposterous that this man says this. And he's not listening to the uh, program at all. Take, uh, take strong umbrage to that. 
These people were a different group of um, uh, persecuted individuals of the Third Reich, and they didn't have a choice to serve. Now, on the other side, with Rebbe Schneerson, with his bad leadership, I have twice already in this talk talked about the Vod and Rabbi Kotler and Kamenovitz, who are wonderful leaders, who were doing everything they could. So he's not listening to me. So there were many good Jewish leaders at this time period that were doing all they could to uh, help you know, their brothers and sisters who were in Europe and use the real world uh, of politics and lobbying and building out uh, coalitions to rescue people. And then a lot of the people who were serving in the German military, when I mentioned Bloch, and I mentioned, you know, the guy that was helping him, uh, that knew Yiddish, these people were actually helping rescue Jews. They were not killing Jews. So, you know, I would encourage, you know, that man to go to my website, uh, Stan, I guess is his name, and go look at my work, and you will see that nowhere in this radio program or in my work am I saying that Jews did it to themselves. That's grotesque. Now, thank you, Zeb, for sort of no, cutting no, off. And certainly the Jews, and there, there were the victims here. But I was just curious about the Hitler's Jewish soldiers. There was a 50% or a quarter Jewish. And you said some of them you know, had some Jewish background or had relatives killed. So what was the, they were, must have been conflicted. Here they're serving the German army, and here Germany is killing their relatives. So how did they so, deal so with that? Is, yeah, that's a very good question. And if, you, if uh, people are interested, there is a... Um, uh, a three-part series that's on YouTube now. It was a Dateline program uh, that was focused on my research, and um, we got it up and running a few uh, months ago. And there's there's this question is dealt with with some of the German soldiers who were interviewed for Dateline. Uh, Jane Pauley, you know, introduces the show, and it's called Hidden in Plain Sight, and it's a wonderful documentary they did with me back in 2002. So most of these guys, we ask them, you know. Uh, do you feel guilty for what you did? And, you know, when I started this research, I thought that overwhelmingly all of them would say, yes, of course I did. But, you know, uh, shockingly what I found is uh, the opposite. They they were dealing a lot of times with using a, a phrase from Lawrence Longer, who uh, did a lot of research on uh, testimonies of Holocaust victims. You're dealing with choiceless choice. They didn't have a lot of options. When they get drafted, they couldn't go to the draft board and say, hey, you're treating my family my mom in a prison, you took my dad's job, uh, and it would probably put their family in even greater harm because there was a thing called Sippenhof that when you broke the law, your family could be liable for the punishment. So, you know, many of these guys were serving, when relatives were being deported, a lot of times they didn't know where the people were really being deported to. They, they knew it wasn't good. But then a lot of times their older relatives, their great aunts and uncles and their grandparents and so on, when they were being deported, that they were being deported to their systematic extermination was beyond their knowledge and their imagination. That the people that they grew up with, their neighbors, their friends, uh, you know, some of their own Aryan, quote-unquote, Aryan relatives were involved with the killing machinery was something that they just couldn't fathom. Also, most of the people I've interviewed and documented and who were half Jews and quarter Jews in the military, you know, they're young guys. You know, they're between the ages of 18 and 22, and they're thinking, okay, how can I prevent from dying in the war? When can I sleep with the next girl? 
Um, how can I get my studies back on board? When can I sleep with the next girl? And, you know, I hope mom's okay. And when can I sleep with the next girl? I mean, their, their world is very small at this time. And they, they want to take care of their buddies. They want to be with their girls when they get home on leave. And they want the war to come to an end. And what's shocking here is that these, most of the half-Jews, they were causing so many troubles with the Nazis because they were coming home on leave and grandma was going to be deported and they go in their black panzer uniform to the deportation station like Jurgen Krakow did and said, you can't take this woman. I'm a panzer officer. I have the Iron Cross and this is my grandmother. And they would get the release of some of their relatives. And this actually got up to Hitler. I got the, the brief. And Hitler basically said, hey, we're either going to have to protect the Jewish parents of these half-Jewish soldiers or we're going to have to discharge the half-Jews. Well, we can't protect full Jews. Discharge the half-Jews. And these orders started going out right before the Russian uh, campaign, Barbarossa, June 21st, 1941. And so you started having these waves of guys being found because, you know, they had to do the genealogical research a lot of times on them to verify that they were half-Jews. And so it was a bureaucratic nightmare. I mean, think about it. If you have 17, over 17 million men who go through the ranks of the Wehrmacht, and you have to document every soldier's parents and grandparents, you've got millions and millions of people you have to document to verify somebody's family tree. So you have these waves of discharges that are going on throughout 41, 42, 43 of half-Jews, and they're leaving the military. Now, the question that needs to be asked, you know, like, it, for them to have the knowledge of what was going on, then to then act on that knowledge, what's shocking here is that most of them didn't really know what was going on with their relatives. And only in 44, when the half-Jews who had been dismissed from the military were then being rounded up themselves and sent to forced labor camps, only then did they start realizing what the hell happened when they got to those camps. One thing that needs to be asked is many of these guys were noti notified in the mail that they had a week to two weeks to report at certain train stations to then go to forced labor camps or the uh, organization tote uh, uh, camps. And one question that needs to be asked is that if they knew that their relatives who had been deported before them were deported to their deaths, why did they go to their own deportation stations? So feeling guilt and, and whatnot, uh, many of them feel not guilty for what they did do because they didn't have any choices. But as Gert Falkenheim uh, told me, he said, you know, what? when I feel guilty, I feel guilty for what I didn't do. I should have understood what was going on. I should have, you know, uh, understood all the inputs that were being given to me and taken grandma and got her to Switzerland or taken my mom and put her in underground or taking my dad and got him to Sweden. I should have, I should have, I should have. And this is what makes this history so fascinating. So, so fascinating. We're almost out of time. I just want to squeeze in one email because I promise we got at least one more email in. Leah Kay writes, with all due respect to your guest, he's leaving out a few very salient points. One, why did the Rebbe not attempt to get his own daughter and son-in-law out of Poland if he was unable to get them out? How could he get out others? Two, and he also was very ill with MS and a very weakened state. So how could he fight for everyone? And three, after the war... The Sopran Rebbe said the Jews deserve this because they were sinners. The Friedrich Rebbe responded, you don't have to be Hashem's lawyer. We as a nation were stricken beyond measure. 
Well, what's interesting, he, he brings up he, 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 this, 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 unlike the other caller, this, this person is well-informed and in and very kind way of uh, asking the question. I'll take the last point uh, first. Um, after the war, the Rebbe did put away his theology and focus on building up his community and building up, you know, Chabad uh, houses all over the place and so on. And so after 45, you don't see this condemnation. It was only during the war that he got really hyper-focused on the theology, which really clouded his leadership capability. But he is right to note that after the war, he changed his tune totally and focused strictly on building up the Jewish community and repairing as uh, best he could uh, his community. Now, he did try to get out one of his uh, daughters, the Hornsteins, um, one of his daughters and, and son-in-laws. But because they were Polish citizens, they were not able to get, and it's either Rebbe was a Russian uh, citizen, and so the visa department was open to them, but not to the Poles. So when they got to um, uh, Riga, uh, they had to remain behind tragically. And our government, you know, just pull my hair out that we, we missed out on rescuing these these uh, young Jewish lives. Uh, so a few of the Polish nationals had to stay. And he did try to get them out. He did focus, he did have some pinpoint focus uh, people that he was trying to get out, obviously his children. And one of them, you know, being uh, Menachem Mendel Schneerson and his wife, his daughter, uh, so he was trying to get the, those out. Uh, but that's basically all you see when he's really focusing heavily on rescuing lives. It's just these certain individuals instead of just in general, hey, we got to get the immigration office to open up to what's going on here, like the VOD was doing with Cutler and Kamenovitz. Um, uh, read the email back to me. Cause was, uh, I hit point one and point, point three. What was point two? Uh, he was also very ill with MS and was very weak in states. How could he fight for everyone? That's right. You know, yeah, you got to be somewhat sympathetic to to the state. I mean, he put himself in it to some degree because he ate too much and he smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. But on the other side, when you look at the energy this man gave to his Farbringen, and you read the Likutai Dibarim that he have, I read all four volumes of it. He's given sermons every day. He's helping with articles. He's getting newspapers out there. He's he's studying. Uh, even though he had all the, these problems physically, you can give him a somewhat a hall pass because he has a lot of medical issues, no doubt. And and the gentleman is right to bring he that had, up. He actually had issues. We're out of time. Your website, people get a hold of you? Yes, if they want to send me more questions and whatnot, my website is brianmarkrig.com. Uh, and I also have a, a business a website called Rig Wealth Management because I'm a uh, certified financial planner. Um, so people can get my email there as well. If they have any questions, I'd be happy we to We have to have them. you back and, again. You know, and we probably, if we couldn't get to some of the calls, some of the other emails. Brian, Mark, Ricks, thank you for being part of our show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Talk Line Network, America's leading Jewish radio and TV network since 1981. This concludes Jewish programming for tonight. For continuous, non-stop Jewish broadcasting, please go right now online to TalkLineCommunications.com. For more information on all of TalkLine's Jewish radio and TV shows, please call 212-769-1925 or email info at TalkLineCommunications.com. TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network the voice of the Jewish community. Thank you for tuning in to 